welcome to Perfect Night In. I'm your host, Neil Perryman, and today's guest is the stand-up comic Phil Paget. Hello, Phil. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Neil. How are you? I'm fine, and you've come today to share your Perfect Night In with us, isn't that right? That's as I understand it, yes. Where are you spending your Perfect Night In? What does the room look like? room is... Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty standard living room, um, but I don't, I don't want to go into too much detail because, you know, it's not an interior design show. Okay, Phil, so you're sat in your nondescript living room. How are we going to start your perfect night in? Wackaday. It stands for Wide Awake Club a day, I think. Um, I wanted to pick. I wanted to pick a kids show, but I, I thought rather than pick one that was kind of cool that I would that I would still watch now, I tried to think of something that really genuinely got me excited when I was a kid. And there's really nothing that quite matches the excitement I had for Wackaday at the time. Timmy Mallet. I mean, looking back on him, I don't. I can't see really what you know what the appeal was other than the fact that he's got a very he wore very very colorful clothes and a hat and he had and he had his what i assume was a rubber mallet and and when you look at it now it it, it does kind of there is something incredibly phallic about it but it, it it didn't occur to me at the time he had a game called mallet's mallet which was a kind of word association game so he would have two children either side of him and um, he would start them off with a word, say, um, egg, one of them, and then the next one would have to say chicken, and then the next one would have to say nugget. And then, but if any of them paused, if they skipped a beat, he would bonk them on the head with his mallet. Okay, well, whoever wins this one, of course, goes to the big final, gets a chance to win a hit 6LP. Okay, here's the mallet, and don't forget, it's a word association game, mustn't pause, mustn't hesitate, bashing the head like this, or like this, one of the most brutish losers, look at each other and go, bleep! Look at them and go, bleep! Look back and go, bleep! Good, and the word is fish. Mallet's mallet is uh, basically the technique I use whenever I'm comparing as a as a comic, and you have to sort of keep the momentum going and keep and think of something off the top of your head without sort of letting the audience know that you're uh, you've got nothing to say. Mallet's mallet is what I use. I just use whatever the last word in, that's been said. I'll just try and think of something. So it's it, it stayed with me in that way. Now it's time for our cookery spot. Today we'll be showing you how to make a glass of water. You had uh, Mike Myers and Neil Malarkey doing a thing called the Sound of Sleep Club. It was, I think, Mike Myers' TV debut. I don't know how he ended up on it, but um, so there'd be little sketches like that. And then there would be sort of pieces about um, news, I guess. My favourite clip is one that I know that you're aware of, which is uh, Timmy Mallet doing a piece on apartheid. Now, these pictures show exactly the same things come in different colours, and so do people. South Africa used to be the most unpopular country in the world, by the way, because of the way it treated its people. And for a long time, people said, it's not fair. Well, finally, things have begun to change. Which is as bizarre as it sounds. Um, the weirdest thing, I mean, I don't know how it came about. I, I, I suspect that 
he got a sniff of a free trip from this because there's no real reason for him to to cover it. It wasn't really in the program's remit, and so he goes to South Africa and does a, a piece uh, to camera about how um, a silly rule called apartheid means that the black people and the white people can't play together. I just think. They used to have stupid rules and regulations which said that you couldn't even be friends together. Daft! It's not badly done. It's You expect it to be a complete, uh, you know, toe-curling embarrassment. But it actually, in its way, um, explains the situation uh, quite quite well. Uh, and I think that could have been the start of uh, a career as a television journalist. He could have covered, I mean, you could have sent him to cover the Rwandan genocide. You know, he could have he could have done AIDS. It clearly he he had a he had a bit of a knack for it, and it seems that it was he didn't pursue it further. All I can say is that I really really responded to whatever it was he was doing when I was a kid. He had a single out, uh, and I had the seven inch, and it was called it was called Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini, which was a it's like that was a track from the sixties, wasn't it? Um, but his outfit, his, uh, his 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 pop outfit, was called Bomblerina. It was him. It was Timmy Mallet and two dancers. One of whom is now Mrs. Gary Barlow, and the the record was produced by Andrew Lloyd Webber, uncredited. But if you know where to look, I mean, the, there are some nasty rumours going around, Neil, that it's not actually Timmy Mallet singing on the record, and that he used a kind of ghost singer but you know I, I, I'll file that along with the 9-11 truthers. The video had a, a, a young lady in a very small bikini you know with Timmy Malik kind of um, writhing around on a hammock and going oh yeah you wouldn't really get away with that nowadays I don't think. I don't think a kids presenter would uh, would put themselves in that position but you know that it was a simpler time Neil. So Timmy Mallet takes us up to 6.30 and your next choice is... It's uh, Batman, the animated series. For, for my generation, I think, that, that animated series became kind of our definitive Batman. It was a beautifully produced show the whole aesthetic of it was that it, it, it was kind of timeless. It had a kind of 30s look about it in the way the characters dressed. It also had a kind of 50s thing going on. It had Danny Elfman's theme tune from the Tim Burton movies. Um, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm right in saying that they, they used to paint um, the animation cells onto a onto a black background, which is unusual. Not obviously, normally they do it onto white, but in order to give it this kind of gloomy, this um, oppressive kind of noirish feel, it was all done done onto black. It also is reminiscent of those Max Fleischer Superman cartoons in terms of uh, how the characters are depicted and stuff. And Kevin Conroy, who did the voice of Batman, is the the definitive Batman performance for me. Um, I don't know what it is particularly about his voice, but it just it's it's lodged in my brain. So if if I read a Batman comic now, it's his voice that I hear 
doing Batman. Is it a very deep voice? Is it like, I'm Batman? It, 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 it kind of is, but it doesn't feel... You know the way when Christian Bale does it, it feels like he's, he's really putting effort in to, to go... Rah, rah, rah. It, Kevin Conroy does it in a much... It, it, seems to, uh, it, it seems to fit him a lot better and it doesn't seem like he's straining. A year ago, Ferris Boyle interrupted an experiment and in the process destroyed two lives. Here's the evidence. One of the things about the Batman the animated series is, is that it was so well received that it kind of that some of the elements from it were incorporated into the kind of uh, Batman official canon. Um, so most notably, um, the character of Harley Quinn, who's very pop- been very popular for the last twenty years. She came from an episode of this, um, and also um, the, the kind of the backstory for Mister Freeze. This version of Mister Freeze is now kind of the version of Mister Freeze. Um, which is they make him a kind of sympathetic character. He's um, a, a scientist who's had an, you know been befallen by an accident, which is not you know that unusual for a villain. Um, but he's got his wife is um, suffering from a terminal disease, and so he's frozen her in order to um, give himself time to develop a cure. And there's a, a real, it's quite a moving image in this um of he of him of mr freeze close up of mr freeze's face of him, a single tear sort of um developing at uh from the corner of his eye and then it sort of freezes over and dissipates into into ice and it's it's that's the you know it's it's it's, it's stuck with me that has and also the guy who did the um the voice michael ansara who is uh, he, I think he's dead now, not as a result of doing that voice, but he, um, his performance is really chilling in it because it's he just he completely strips all humanity out of his voice, and it's it's. I, I remember hearing a story about him recording this, and the the producer saying, "Just take it down, take it down," and then he would do a take, and they say, "No, take it down even further," and he managed to hit on. Uh, this really eerie way of speaking. The cold eyes of vengeance are upon you, Boyle. Who... who are you? Come now. Surely you remember your old colleague, Victor Freeze. It makes him kind of robotic, but but still, you know, you, you, you still don't lose empathy for him. It's 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 really really well done. Okay, that takes us up to seven o'clock, and your next choice, Phil, is BBC Television presents Tony Hancock in Hancock's Half Hour. I've chosen the Economy Drive. It's it's kind of a typical episode in some ways. Um, I don't think it's one that people pick out as you know one of the really famous ones. Um, it comes from later on in the run, uh, and if you watch some of the very early ones, some of the very early TV ones, they're much more theatrical. Uh, they have a lot more to do with um, kind of sketch comedy in a way. They they they're very they're kind of off the wall. They use a lot of dream sequences, uh, and the plots are a lot more cartoonish. But the time you get to this stage, they've kind of developed into being a bit more grounded. And this is um, uh, this is one of the, the the most grounded episodes, and you can almost imagine this taking place in some version of reality. 
Um, so I really like it for that reason. It's got a lot of great interplay between uh, Hancock and Sid. Uh, this is them on sort of really good bickering form. You won't get anything out of that. Why not? I had it cut off. <laughs> See? I didn't forget everything, did I? You had it cut off. The one thing in the house you can leave on without it costing anything, and you had it cut off. <laughs> and it cost... And it costs money to have it put back on again as well. The sort of centrepiece of the episode is Hancock going for lunch at this... I assume it's some sort of cafe, but it doesn't look like any cafe that I've ever seen in my life. They have this kind of, like, take-your-pick system with doors, with plates of food behind them. I mean, do you think that was a prop that was left over from something else that they thought, oh, we can use this? It was, op- you open up a, a random door and you just take whatever's behind it, regardless of what what it is. That's that's That sounds reasonable. We've got all this to look forward to after Brexit. Yes, that's true. Except there'll only be two doors. Just a minute, please. That's mine. How'd you make that out? First come, first served, old boy. Yes, well, I know, and I was first. Not to that compartment. Excuse me. That is my place and chips. If I hadn't asked, you wouldn't have known where it was. Don't be ridiculous. I come here every day. I know where they keep the place and chips. Excuse me. Don't make words. Wait, me. So it's a bit of a tour de force sort of performance, isn't it? It, it, it? it goes from him being very determined to get a particular meal down to, as a result of misfortune and his own mismanagement of the situation, he ends up with a single bread roll and some ketchup. But then someone comes and... I'm, I'm spoiling here, spoilers, but someone uh, comes and collects it while he's bending over. And so he accuses the guy next to him of stealing his bread roll. And that's a real, that's a proper, like, that's what Hancock was really good at, which is this complete conviction that he's right in a situation um, and sort of going in all guns blazing, even though we, the audience, know that he's completely barking up the wrong tree. I really love Tony Hancock. Um, One of the things I love about him is that I don't fully understand how his comedy works. I recognise that he's sort of... He's kind of satirising a a particular kind of post-war pomposity, I think. Um, But there's something in the way that he delivers uh, the the jokes and something about his physicality that is just that it seems kind of magical and I and I, I really struggle to pigeonhole him in, in a particular category. He's 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 a real one off, I think. Where were you when you were first introduced to Tony Hancock? Well there's um there's a monument to him in Birmingham City Centre. I'm from Birmingham by the way. Um so I saw that as a kid and I was always sort of intrigued by it. Um I later found out that he he, he didn't live in Birmingham at all. He was born in Birmingham and then moved, his family moved away when he was still a baby but that's you know the Birmingham City Council still thought it was worth commemorating the fact that he was here for about three and a half weeks um so I was I was fascinated by uh the the image of him and then and then I saw I, I can't have been very old probably about seven or eight I saw some sort of Saturday afternoon repeats on BBC two um but uh, and and like them, but I really got into it. I think when I was 
uh, about 18 or 19 and I saw a number of the TV episodes but a lot of the I heard a lot of the radio ones as well um, and it became a little bit of an obsession for a while and I think in in you know in technical terms it's very dated and it's sort of very um, it, 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 it's a very very much a sitcom prototype you know and they haven't quite ironed out all the ways in which they're going to produce television like this but in 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 terms of the the characters and the performances and the writing it's i think it's aged a lot better than a lot of other stuff of its time hancock takes us up to 7 30 and i think it's time for some snacks what have you got phil i've got a tub of uh hagen pralines and cream I don't, I'm not particularly endorse Hagen Dars as a company, but I don't know of another company that does that type of ice cream. Um, so that a tub of that will probably last me the evening. Do you not fancy any crisps? I could probably do uh, a packet of Monster Munch. Which flavour? Well, that's the thing. All three flavours of Monster Munch are brilliant, aren't they? Pickled onion's my favourite. Yeah, I mean, they're all, you know, I'm not going to take you to task on that. I probably would say. I probably would say the beef ones, but I think pickled onion is a perfectly valid choice. Which is all very nice and filling for him. Not so for his somewhat smaller friends. However, while he's enjoying his dream, guess who's enjoying his Monster Munch? Monster Munch from Smith's in three flavours. The biggest snack pennies can buy. The next programme you've chosen is another comedy at 7.30, and it's another programme I've never seen. It's uh, it's fantastic, Frasier, because it's uh, it's a kind of a com- it's a kind of comedy that uh, American sitcoms don't do all that often, um, which is ostensibly about class, and you know as we know the most of the best sitcoms they're all they they thrive on the differences of the principal characters and their the you know the the way that they're respective values collide with each other when they're in a contained situation and Frasier and Martin Frasier's dad um, are two you know they're very very different people Um, if you wanted to be really really broad about it and they never really they never go this specific in the show Martin is kind of a kind of a typical Republican and Frazier is a kind of a, a typical Democrat, um, so I think that's the kind of that's the area that they're operating in. But they as they never they nail, never nail their colours to the mast on that kind of thing. The episode you've chosen is Ham Radio. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, um, Frazier every now and again would do uh, an out and out farce. It, it's uh, yeah, I'd say this is the best farce they ever did, and its farce episodes are, are I would say, and I know this is. Big words, but I'd say they're as, as good as faulty towers. There's someone outside that window. Why, yes, Miss Thorndyke. It appears to be. <laughs> the ice cream truck. This episode in particular is. I remember seeing this well, when I was about 11 or 12 and just laughing till it hurt. It, it was just the funniest thing, and um, it's based around Frasier decides to 
put on a live broadcast of a, a murder mystery detective story. Because he's such a control freak and can't accept any feedback and can't manage people, um, he can't keep the cast happy, he, can't, he, he, he recruits people from the radio station to play all the various parts. And when the broadcast goes live, obviously, it completely unravels bit by bit by bit. The final bullet blew his head clean off his shoulders. <laughs> All right, people, let's try to keep calm, although it's hard when the killer is among us. Hi-ho, I'm Nigel's brother, Cedric. I haven't seen him since our boyhood. We bump... And so died the last surviving member of the Fire Service family. Fast functions on there being a figure of fear that's haunting the proceedings off stage, so the panic is there. And in this case, the only panic is the fact that this is going out live and it's going to be really embarrassing for Frasier if it goes wrong. But because it's in within the episode, it's going out live, it's, it's a real kind of palpable sense of uh, uh of of Frasier's mental uh breakdown as it as it unfolds when we finished you'll know the full dark secret of nightmare in are you through with it hans <laughs> be quiet mother it's, it's a brilliant piece of uh, sitcom writing beautifully performed and, you, and I, I really recommend that you, you go and watch at least some episodes of Frasier. Frasier takes us nicely up to 8 o'clock, so what's next, Phil? This is not a holiday camp. This is a business proposition from heaven. Lord Sugar is searching for a brand new business partner. Forget about Brexit. In this process, I'm the one who decides who's going to remain and who's going to leave. It's The Apprentice. It's got, I think, and this is probably contrary to popular opinion, I think it's got better throughout the years. And the reason I think it's got better is that it's abandoned all pretense of it being a serious business show and just really leaned into the ridiculousness of what it asks all the people to do. It knows full well that the tasks bear no relation to anything that anyone's ever going to realistically face in business. And it doesn't matter. It's actually... I think it's got a lot more in common with things like the Generation Game um, than it has with a serious business show because it's sort of giving people a task that you, a task that you know they're going to fail at and sort of revelling in watching exactly how they fail. Did you know what the octopus was? Uh, not we didn't understand exactly what the forty-inch hose referred to, but we found that out later on. Did you? We didn't actually get that confirmed. An octopus with a forty-inch hose—it's a piece of diving equipment. Okay, it's something to help people breathe underwater. But you bought an actual, real, live octopus, right? Well, it was dead. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been dead the time you finished measuring its bloody tentacles. Uh, What's great about it as well is that the, the very things that have got them to be um, successful in whatever field they're successful in are the very things that are going to be working against them in the process of being on The Apprentice. 
So or, so single-mindedness, bullishness, um, inability to work in a team. You know, I like a lot of the the individual rounds. Um, I look forward to each year. Um, the treasure hunt one is always a highlight. Hey guys, we're actually on our way to pick up a Hasira. We already collected the Hasira, don't worry about the Hasira. You've already got it. Have you already got it? Because we're right outside the shop. We've got the Hasira already. We've got the Hasira already. You've got the Hasira, don't worry about that. You never told us you got it, so we've wasted a lot of time. Sean, tell me now. You're getting the wine and the honeycomb, is that correct? correct. We're getting the wine and the honeycomb. We're also going to look for the salt as well. Get the filigree boat and the Maltese house, get those, yeah? Yeah, thank you. They should have told us. They've been here all day. Um, also, another highlight I always enjoy is the interviews round, which happens uh, sort of second to last week, something like that. They usually tear their business plans apart, but so how do they get on the programme in the first place if their business plans are so bad? That would always be, that would be my, that would be how I answered any one of those interviews. When Claude, <laughs> or whoever it is, says... You know, well, we've spoken to your secondary school, and it turns out that you didn't even you 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 didn't attend there. You you were actually homeschooled, and you didn't even do very much of that. And then you say that you started this business, but actually, um, we've looked on company's house, and it was your mate Alan who did that. And we've looked at we've looked at on uh, you know you, this university doesn't even exist that you claim that you've gone to, and etc. 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 Your yeah. business plan doesn't work. Yeah, you you know you're, you're trying to sell slippers to people with no feet yeah and and i would just sit there and say well yeah fair enough all good points but and yet here i am i am the best you could do you could have had anyone get to this stage in this competition and and you you chose me have you got my business accounts there i do how did you get hold of them it's a public document oh okay so first of all you don't have four and a half percent gross profit oh. and also you talk about turnover of eight thousand pounds per week do you know what turnover is yeah the amount of money that we make the amount of money we turn over was it the amount of money that we take yeah sales yeah. perhaps sales. sales yes right your accounts don't show don't show four hundred thousand turnover that's a very persuasive argument you make for The Apprentice, Phil, but how can you enjoy a show that's unleashed so much evil on the world? There, there is that. <laughs> but I don't watch... I've never watched the American version, neither when... Not when Donald Trump was on it and not when Arnold Schwarzenegger was on it. Katie Hopkins, well... You know, there's always a fly in the ointment, isn't there? But I'm sure if it wasn't The Apprentice that she made her name on, it would have been another reality show. OK, that takes us up to nine o'clock and uh, change of uh, gear. And the next choice is... They're off. All the girls are a little bit slowly away. Serious hurry. Breaks very fast from TM and Hinari video in the early stages. Uh, then Kalara... Cracker. The episode you've chosen is the, fir the first two parts, which is um, called Mad Woman in the Attic. Yes, the, the very first one. Um, I discovered Cracker when I was at... Uh, at university, I think. Um, in fact, I know, yeah, I was at university. And I'd never really seen a British drama like it. Um, I find a lot of, even now, I find a lot of British dramas, they seem to think that they seem to think that they have to be unremittingly earnest. You know, so that all of the characters have to be incredibly serious 100% of the time. 
no moments of levity whatsoever. And I don't believe that anyone, even in you know, even in the world of medicine or law or anything like that, I don't believe that people are, are that serious that much of the time. And I think it's a real. I think, I think it's a kind of failing of British drama in, in a way that they they can't strike the kind of balance that American dramas do. Um, so Cracker, it was kind of a revelation in that it, that's exactly what it did. Um, I mean, Fitz is a is is you know as funny as any sitcom character, and he's, <laughs> he's I mean, it's just it's one of those characters where I've got loads of his lines just in my head at any given time, and I'm always ready to deploy them. Give us an example. A uh, good old-fashioned British justice, uh, where a man is innocent until proven Irish. I only really like the the the, the episodes that Jimmy McGovern wrote. Um, so this this episode is one of them, um, and it opens. Well, uh, first the first time we see Fitz, he arrives onto the stage um, in a lecture hall and starts uh, throwing books at students. Which nowadays you probably wouldn't get away with, would you? I think the term is assault. But you know, in the nineties, again, it was a simpler time, and uh, and so straight away you think, oh, this 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 guy's uh, this guy's a bit of a a bit of a loose cannon. You think, I I, I I'm betting he's going to be a bit of a maverick. He's he's incredibly brusque, isn't he? And I think that might do you know? I think that might be part of why I responded to him is that he kind of reminds me a little bit of um, Tom Baker's Doctor Who in the way, in how dismissive he is of anyone who he deems as beneath him, which is everyone. I think he might be innocent. What? You don't even consider that, eh? You got yourself a suspect, so all your energy is concentrated into proving that he did it. You could prove he didn't do it, but where would that get you? Classic policing error. You piss off back to your clinic. He's quite unpleasant, isn't he? And yet, you can imagine enjoying his company. This particular episode is about um, a, uh, a guy who's lost his memory, who's the kind of the prime suspect in, in a murder case. And the, the debate between Fitz and um, Bilbra is, you know, Bilbra is saying, this, this guy's not lost his memory, he's just refusing to talk. And... Uh, and Fitz isn't isn't convinced that that is the case, um, and uh, but a lot of really interesting ideas are, are thrown into it as well. Um, like the there's a scene in which um, a woman claims to be the guy's wife calls up claiming to be the guy's wife, um, and he thinks that once once he meets her, he's going to get his memory back, and he thinks, oh, I've got a wife, this must be it. But it turns out that she's uh, just someone who's seen him on TV, and because he's an, uh, accused of being a murderer, she's taken a shine to him. <coughs> Women. Suppose we'd shown your face in the telly. I'd just come right out with it. This man is suspected of murder. They'd all have fallen for you, not just the one. A phone in their droves. Can I have some more? Sure. Dirty Dan, mean anything to you? You stand us? No. Well, I had this idea. A soap opera, right? And all the actors 
Not the characters, mind you, all the actors are convicted murderers. 15 million viewers, all of them women, no problem. All drooling at the mouth. Women, eh? There is a, there is a kind of um, a certain section of society that have a, a kind of murderer fetish, isn't there? So it never occurred to me prior to watching that episode. Another thing watching it now that strikes me is people smoking indoors constantly. It's any drama where people are doing that when you watch it now is is it's just it seems like another world, doesn't it? These were halcyon days of Great Britain. You're too young to feel nostalgic. I can remember smoking indoors, not maybe not in betting shops as Fitz does all the time. You know what really sets it apart from other, you know, good procedurals are the scenes where Fitz um, talks to the the suspect and asks questions that seemingly aren't really connected to to where it's going to go, and you just the joy in watching him get on the on their particular wavelength and their spotting their flaws in order to unravel, you know, their mental state it's 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 fabulous big mistake it's just what you were looking for isn't it hmm? that first sign of weakness vulnerability you'll strike now you'll kill now won't you huh stop this it's your mission in life women like that isn't it acting tough in control showing a bit of thigh treating you like dirt when they look well you show her exactly what's what won't you you'll put her in her place you can read her like a book. She's not tough. You'll put her in her place for keeps, won't you? Stop this. Those two episodes of Cracker takes us up to 10.50, but before we start your final choice, Phil, can I get you a drink? Uh, can I have a black coffee? Is that all right? Or is it too... Black coffee? Yeah. Any particular brand? Uh, Kenko Milicano, um, please. Good choice. Um, yeah, I, don't, but I haven't got a cafetiere or anything like that. You know, um, It's just instant, but... You know, but upmarket instant. I'll pay, um, you know, five pound a jar. Uh, I'll, I'll just pop off and make you one as we introduce your final choice. Um, this is a, a documentary called The Secret Life of Bob Monkhouse, which was broadcast on BBC Four in, a, I think it was 2011. And I think there's been a lot of documentaries about the life of Bob Monkhouse because he's uh, a, a genuinely, had, had a genuinely fascinating life uh, and really uh, seems to have been quite a complex person. And some of the, some of the documentaries have been a bit, for want of a better word, a bit more ITV. You know, they're a bit more sort of uh, celebrating him as a comedian, um, which is all very, you know, which is great. But um, this one is a bit more uh, even handed, I would say. It, it kind of tells it tells the story of his of Bob Monkhouse's life and career, but through the prism of his um, obsessive cataloguing and hoarding, which he was kind of known for. I think certainly after his death, this became more apparent the extent to which this had gone on. Um, but he used to, you know, he's, he had a, a big shed in his in his garden that had, that 
thousands upon thousands of VHS tapes of programmes he'd recorded. After he died, it came out that he had a lot of stuff that didn't exist anywhere else. Um, so there's uh, interviews with people like Lenny Henry about how his first appearance on TV wasn't in the archive, but Bob Monkhouse had it. There's clips of um, Bob Monkhouse's final episode of The Golden Shot, um, where he was just letting rip at the, the the whole production and sort of having a pop at Norman Vaughan, who was his uh, successor. And he's really, really, genuinely really pissed off in that episode. I'm a because I'm a I'm a big fan of, of Bob Monkhouse generally um, as a comedian. Um, you know, uh, I didn't really come to appreciate how good he was as a stand-up until I was kind of in my mid early to mid twenties. I would say, he, despite the fact that he'd been one of those people who was just ever present on TV when I was a kid, but I'd see him on things, you know, like um, Celebrity Squares or presenting the National Lottery draws. You know, he was just a kind of he, he was a kind of uh, like a jack of all trades, he was kind of like he was just like the, the the BBC's kind of supply teacher presenter at that point in his career. He would just be brought in whenever no one else could be asked. So he'd, or he would just. He, I was aware of him as a, as as a public figure, but I'd never really. I don't even think I realised he was a comedian until much later, and I didn't realise how um, how adult his comedy as a stand-up was, which was a big surprise because he was kind of uh, Mister Mister Clean Cut Slick Game Show Host kind of guy, wasn't he? The equivalent now would be finding out that someone like. Philip Schofield did stand up in working men's clubs and was incredibly foul mouthed. I've heard it been said that Bob Monkhouse is, um, you know, is the stand up comic, stand up comic, if you know what I mean. Is is, is that true? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think for a lot of people, there's clips in, and there was a separate documentary made of this, but there's clips in this of his final performance, um, which was. I think it was literally weeks before he eventually died mm -hmm. and he's uh, performing to a room full of kind of the alternative comics of of that time so it's like early 2000s so um, Reese Shearsmith's there Kevin Day's there uh, John Coleshaw David Walliams is there um, and it's uh, it's a bizarre thing because that's as a comedian that's the last gig you'd ever want to do is just a room just full of comedians it would be hellish.
and yet to him it was like that's exactly what he did want to do he he loved comedy and he was always he was one of those people who would send the lift back down you know he would he would always um bring new comic talent that he liked onto tv shows where perhaps they you know might have been their first break into that kind of thing but he was even as a kid he was obsessive about comedy he would write down the jokes that he'd heard on radio he would write he would try and write jokes in the style of bob hope comedians can be notoriously um sluggish in getting to work you know their procrastination is usually the the kind of mean setting um so to see someone who is that creatively charged and it came across in his stand-up as well you know he was always he, he was just a kind of onslaught of, of gags and, and punchlines and had a, a, a joke for any subject it's definitely something that i aspire to is that sort of having that kind of catalogue brain and he also didn't seem like the sort of person who would obsessively catalogue episodes of tv shows he would even do things like it, it, he'd keep tv listings and if a program ran long and the subsequent program was you know five minutes late or whatever he would correct the tv listings before he kept it in his files he would add cast members that didn't make it into the radio times listings no idea how he managed to find the time to do all this it's not like you know a load of um gigabytes on a on a hard drive it's like it's you see the physical space that all these vhs tapes are taking up and you think it's like this is bad. this is like a guy's life's work in a in a in a weird way and that's separate to his actual career. <laughs> so that's Phil Paget's Perfect Night In, starting at six o'clock with Wackaday, and that's followed by Batman the Animated Series at 6.30. At seven begins a whole hour of comedy with a classic Hancock's half hour, followed at 7.30 by a great episode of Frasier. The Apprentice is at eight, with a feature length outing for Robbie Coltrane as Cracker at nine. And it's all rounded off at 10.50 with The Secret Life of Bob Monkhouse. Sounds like a perfect night in. Those were fabulous choices, Phil. Thank you very much for being my guest. Oh, thank you, Neil. It's my pleasure. I've just got one last question for you, and that is, who would you like to share your perfect night in with? I, this might not be the answer that you wanted, but I'm going to say I'm going to, I'm going to watch all this stuff on my own. I don't want to have to share my hagen the chances of finding another human being who is as interested, who's as impressed by Batman the Animated Series and Hancock's Half Hour, you know, I think that the 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 intersection of that Venn diagram is pretty slim. But I'll have I'll have a great time on my own. Don't worry about me. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Neil. <laughs> Thank you.